Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 4, Episode 21 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. It might be that people, because they practice their psychological flexibility skills, then they're better able to deal with burnout. Or it might be that because they improve their psychological well-being, then later on has an impact on their burnout. We don't know. And that's, I suppose, still something that we need to understand better and we need to explore in, in the future. But what I think is coming out from my work, I think, is that if we can, even in little doses, address some aspects of the workplace context with these interventions, I think it will be more powerful. For example, trying to give these interventions also to managers or pitching these interventions to employers. So trying to not just target the employees, but the whole workplace context. I think that would be a better way to move forward. Obviously, it's not the easiest and it might not be the most cost-effective, but I think it might be a good way to think about the future of ACT interventions in, in the workplace. Peace Supers, I'm delighted to share part two of my chat with Dr. Ariana Brudenzi. Now, I told you in part one that Ariana was a prolific researcher, and you're about to find out why. I'm so excited to share this episode where Ariana describes four of her recent research publications. <laughs> People Soup is an award-winning podcast where we share evidence-based behavioural science in a way that's practical, accessible and fun to nourish your mind to flourish at work. Let's take a quick scoot over to the news desk because reviews are in for part one of my chat with Ariana. Over on Facebook, Dr Jonathan Dowling said, Lovely episode, Ross and Ariana. Such a fun and connected conversation on dance, language and space. I liked the way you both highlighted how it's great to recognise what matters to us by seeing it in others, and that there isn't the one and only way to live that value, and we can bring it to life in other ways in our own lives. Although I'd love it if you get the chance to go into space one day, Ariana. Here, here, Jonathan, I thoroughly agree. Thanks to you, and thanks to everyone who commented and listened and shared the episode. If you haven't listened to it yet, I think you might enjoy hearing more from Ariana. For now, get a brew on and have a listen to part two of my chat with Dr. Ariana Prudenzi. So, Ariana, I'd love to dive into your research. And we've identified three papers that we're going to explore in a bit more detail for the listeners. The first one is a meta-analysis published last year in the Journal of Affective Disorders, and it's called group-based acceptance and commitment therapy interventions for improving general distress and work-related distress in healthcare professionals, a systematic review and meta-analysis. Yes, thanks, Ross. So this is part of my work that I conducted during my uh, PhD research together with the fantastic supervisors, Professor uh, Daryl O'Connor and Dr. Chris Graham. 
So in my PhD, we've tried to understand how we can use uh, psychological flexibility and self-compassion to improve mental health and reduce stress and burnout of healthcare professionals. So we, we started off with, with this meta-analysis in which we wanted to summarize all the literature on the effectiveness of ACT interventions for improving psychological distress and work-related distress in healthcare staff. So now, when we talk about psychological distress, we talk about subjective distress, such as like stress, anxiety, and depression that is related to the individual. When we talk about work-related distress, we talk about distress that is related to the context. So is related to the workload, the interpersonal relationships at work, the workplace culture. So it's not just subjective, it is relative to the workplace and therefore it's probably more even difficult to change. So what we've tried to do is to understand whether these interventions are effective for both of these two different constructs. And what we found, and I am very excited about this finding, is that this intervention seems to be effective for both psychological distress and work-related distress. Now, of course, we have identified with, you know, the assessment of the quality of the studies that the studies need improvement, especially in terms of of description of the interventions. So as CBS researchers, we should really make an effort when we conduct the study and we report them to improve the way in which we do this type of reporting so that the interventions can be replicated. So the quality wasn't the best and we did assess the quality with two different tools. But overall, we did find a significant effect for the intervention groups in comparison to controls, meaning that when people receive the intervention, they improve, they reduce their psychological distress and work-related distress in comparison to those who do not receive the intervention. I think this is a very powerful message for us, you know, from researchers to say to clinicians, to say to, to people working in different healthcare systems that we do have now you know, a powerful skill that can help people deal with, with these problems, which is psychological flexibility. Wow. Thank you for summarizing that enormous piece of work so succinctly. That's really, really exciting. Congratulations to you and to Daryl and to Chris as well. That's really interesting. And just for the P-supers who haven't come across the idea of a meta-analysis, it's really where you gather all the research that's been done to date in the field and explore it for its rigor and its experimental procedures and validity and make an assessment of that as you review a whole host of different features and indicators. There's a whole patterns of structures that you go through to assess the quality of that study. So this is a really promising outcome. Yes, Ross, absolutely. This is a very fascinating and I think powerful message. The fact that we've summarized together all the evidence of these interventions and we found that these interventions are actually effective. Uh, as I mentioned before, although these interventions are effective and statistically significant, but with a small effect size, there are ways in which we can improve how 
we do these type of studies, especially when we do the so-called randomized control trial studies, where we mm. compare uh, whether an intervention like ACT is effective in comparison to another intervention or a control group where people do not receive the intervention. So we made actually some suggestions in the paper on how researchers can improve the quality of the studies. And I think lots of of ways to improve the studies actually relates to reporting the intervention, for example, how we can better include what's included in the intervention with examples of the exercises, but also information regarding the people delivering the intervention. Who are they? Are they therapists? Are they mindfulness trainers? Are they students? How many years of experience do they have? Do they receive supervision? Are the sessions recorded? So all this kind of information would definitely improve the evidence of these studies moving forward. And if people wanted to discuss their upcoming research on well-being or act in the workplace, would it be all right for them to get in touch with you? Absolutely. I'll be delighted to speak about uh, these work with, with some people supers. Uh, so do feel free to get in touch with me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ariana. Just thinking about that paper, there's something related, which is a chapter in an upcoming book which involved you and Paul Flaxman and Lucy Zernarova. Yes, uh, it's a very exciting collaboration that we started a while ago, but it's now uh, completed. And this is a chapter that is currently in press for the Oxford Handbook for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy and is a chapter about the evidence to date of ACT in the workplace. So we've tried to put together all our brains to come up with something that is quite descriptive. So it's, it's not a meta-analysis, it's a descriptive chapter of the evidence to date, what's been done in, in various workplaces, not just healthcare stuff. And I think this is exciting because what we've seen is that there is a lot of work has been done by a lot of good researchers and yeah, the evidence is definitely growing and is a fascinating time for contextual behavioural science. Let's move on to another study, Ariana, from your PhD. Again, looking at NHS staff in Leeds. Yes, so this is a, a very exciting study and I was so pleased that I've been able to do that because... This was a study that happened just before the pandemic. So we were able actually to do it because with the pandemic, as you know, there have been loads of different delays and stops on conducting research with the NHS. So this was a randomized controlled trial study. So this is a very robust methodology to test whether the intervention was effective in comparison to a basically control group. Um, So we've tested the effectiveness of an adapted version of the ACT protocol um, of, you know, the original version, I'm sure that many people supers know, the Bonn and Plaxman Act in the workplace. This was adapted by Ross, (laughs) Paul Plaxman and Joe Oliver, 
to an extended version with four sessions instead of three delivered in four weeks and each week was a two-hour session. So it's a four-by-two format. And what this was delivered to NHF staff working in Leeds. This was a study funded by the Yorkshire Humber Patient Safety Translational Centre, Leeds Clinical Commissioning Group and the University of Leeds. So this was quite a lot of work, I'm not going to lie, <laughs> because conducting these studies, it's quite uh, demanding. So the intervention was delivered in groups to groups of uh, healthcare practitioners by three different mindfulness trainers that were trained by Ross and Paul uh, here in Leeds. So they received two days training and then also they received supervision throughout the delivery of the intervention. Yeah, so the intervention was delivered in, in quite a long time, I think about a year long, and then uh, we tested the effectiveness uh, of it with different questionnaires. So we were interested in assessing whether the intervention was effective for reducing psychological distress, burnout, but also something that I suppose is quite new, which is patient safety. So patient safety was measured with perceived measures. So we did not assess anything that was objective, like errors, near misses or anything like that, but it was a perceived measure of of patient safety. And then, of course, we also assessed different measures of psychological flexibility and self-compassion. And so what we found, even though this is not a published study yet, is currently under review, is that the results are very promising. And they showed that there's been a reduction of psychological distress and also burnout in those receiving the intervention in comparison to controls. We also found, and I think this is very important for ACT researchers, we also found that the people who receive ACT, they improve their psychological flexibility. So the changes in psychological distress basically led by changes and improvement in their psychological flexibility and self-compassion. So these people are improving because their psychological flexibility is improving. So what I think is very interesting of this study is the fact that for the first time, we've explored patient safety and found that basically the intervention led to an improvement in patient care via a reduction of psychological distress. So because people were improving, reducing their psychological distress, they also improved their patient care. So this was an indirect effect, meaning that, as I said, is because of reducing their psychological distress, then they improve their patient care. So I think it is a very powerful message because this is, you know, a new outcome. And this is um, supposed not just a mental health outcome, but it's more like a performance outcome. And I think it's good that we kind of start exploring a bit more whether psychological flexibility can improve also our performance at, at work. Fascinating, Ariana. Thank you for, again, summarizing that paper so beautifully. I can't wait for it to be published. Fingers crossed it won't be too much longer. I know you can't comment on the process. 
So yeah, it is very fascinating. I have to say that for those who are interested in patient safety, which is, I suppose, quite new in the CBS world, and burnout, well-being, and also the relationship with psychological flexibility and self-compassion, we've also published another study last year in um, psychology, health and, and medicine, in which we tried to explore the association between all these variables together. And I think that that paper, even though it's a cross-sectional study, so it's not a trial, it's not like a study in which we tested the effectiveness of an intervention we've seen that you know it seems to be a relationship between psychological flexibility and patient care and also between self-compassion and burnout which I think they are you know very fascinating kind of things we should explore a bit more in the future because they're quite novel. So in that paper, we found that there is an aspect of mindfulness, which is not the attentional control, but is more the acceptance subcomponent of mindfulness that seems to be really related to patient safety. We thought when we saw that result, we thought that was very interesting to know that probably to improve patient care, we need to consider the inclusion of acceptant aspects of mindfulness. We probably need to consider acceptance uh, as an aspect of psychological flexibility that might improve the way in which we want our care professionals improve their patient care. And this might be related to you know, self-kindness, but we, we don't know. This is a kind of preliminary study, but I thought that it was a quite interesting finding and also was quite interesting, I suppose, the fact that we looked at mindfulness with a slightly different angle from the traditional way of assessing mindfulness, you know, with attentional kind of component. Brilliant. And that studies in psychology and health, as you said, called Wellbeing, Burnout and Safe Practice Among Healthcare Professionals, Predictive Influences of Mindfulness, Values and Self-Compassion. Exactly. Yes. I'm loving that self-compassion is coming into your studies as well, because as someone who trains a lot in the NHS, I think, and this is anecdotal, this isn't research, but one of the key things that people say to me a lot is, I feel like I have permission to take some time out for my own self-care. All the people in the healthcare world that I've experienced have that well of compassion, which they direct towards others. And it's like, having permission to turn that self-compassion onto themselves and say, hey, I am worth it. This is permissible and it's so important for me in my work and my efficacy and my recovery from work as well. Absolutely, Ross. This was actually one of the interests that I also tried to explore during my, my PhD. So one of the kind of objective I had was to understand whether self-compassion can be really helpful for healthcare professionals and whether we should probably include more self-compassion practices when we deliver our training to healthcare practitioners. And I think putting together the evidence we gathered from these studies looks like that self-compassion can be very, very powerful, especially in terms of addressing burnout. Obviously, you know, we know that self-compassion is composed of multiple components, but it might be, and obviously we need further evidence on that, that the self-kindness component of giving healthcare practitioner time to care for themselves can be actually what they need to prevent and to address work-related stress. 
Ariana, another bit of your research that I'd love to discuss is one relating to COVID, and that was published in Psychology and Health. So tell us about that one. Um, yes, so I'm very excited to talk about this project because this was, you know, something that wasn't really planned, but obviously because of the pandemic, uh, just together with PhD supervisors and also PhD colleague Olivia Rogerson, we thought could be a very interesting kind of study to do. So this was a collaboration that started in March 2020, in which we basically wanted to investigate mental health during the pandemic and also how it relates to psychological flexibility and self-compassion together with additional contextual variables such as COVID-19 stress, COVID-19 worry and rumination, which we thought were very important to, to kind of include and assess during very stressful times. This study that's been published quite recently is the first of a number of studies that probably will come out. We've collected data at different times during the pandemic. This particular study that's been published is only the first one that tells us what's happening during the first wave of the pandemic, so between March and, and May 2020. So what we observed during that time was that mental health, in particular like well-being, burnout and life satisfaction of UK residents, so we collected data of about 439 people, decreased and it was lower than comparison normative data. Now, obviously, you know, we don't have a baseline because we didn't know that the pandemic was about to start, but we did compare with normative data and we saw that there was a decrease at Basically, mental health was worse throughout the pandemic. But what's quite exciting, well, exciting, is quite interesting for sure, is the fact that COVID-19 stress and uh, worry, they were high at first, but then they actually decreased. And that is because probably, you know, people adjusted to it. Whilst quality of life actually decreased. So I think that was uh, quite interesting. But to be fair, quite consistent with our expectations. And then what we tried to do was to, we assess the psychological flexibility and self-compassion, but the way in which we did that was, I think, quite different from the way in which, you know, we've done that in, in other studies. So we assess psychological flexibility with two different measures uh, for each subcomponent. So we assess it with a trait measure that means like, how ones tend to behave and with the state measure how ones is behaving so the same measure is more like representative of that specific moment and context while the trait measure is more representative of how one person tends to behave normally and so we saw that psychological flexibility seems to be a protective factors of health for both the trait and the state measure, meaning that people that have higher levels of psychological flexibility that have better able to deal with stressful situations like the pandemic. So again, this wasn't a study on healthcare professionals, it was a study on UK residents. But I think what these kind of study with you know quite fancy analysis is telling us is that you know we have a powerful tool that is able to help people when we are facing stressful scenarios and we should use it because 
there is effectiveness of it and is out there. Brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that one too. And as I said in my introduction, dedicated and prolific in her research, Ariana, you've just demonstrated that for us. Thank you so much for talking about those three papers. And there'll be linked to all of those papers in the show notes for this episode too. And as you've said, you're happy to talk about these. Absolutely. Very happy to you know, share any thoughts and Feel free to get in contact with me if you're interested in this work. You haven't stood still. You finished your PhD at Leeds, and now you're in a post at the University of Birmingham. Yes, so I'm in a very exciting post at the University of Birmingham, working as research fellow together with Professor Stephen Mahawa. So in my current post, I'm still continuing my work around workplace mental health and how we can help people change their behaviors at work. So at the moment, I'm, I'm working on a very large and exciting project that is called Mental Health and Productivity Pilot. So this is a 6.8 million grant funded by the Midlands Engine to try to develop and test interventions for helping employers, employees, organizations to improve mental health and productivity in the workplace. So we are working together with a number of different universities in the Midlands, but also partners to try to improve mental health. So there are different interventions that are currently being developed and tested. And these are interventions in work. So meaning that these are interventions for you know, people, employees who are still at work, but they are struggling. And there are interventions for people to return to work. So when they are on sick leave. So together with my colleagues at University of Birmingham and also colleagues at Warwick University and the Charity Minds, we've developed a new intervention that is called Mentor. That is an intervention to help employees who have a clinical mental condition and are receiving NHS treatments. So this is a specific group of employees who do not usually receive a lot of help earlier on. So these are employees that we usually see when they go on sick leave. So what we are trying to do, given also our research interest in early interventions, we are trying to help them at an earlier stage. And so what we've done is that we've developed a quite complex intervention in which the employee take part in the intervention uh, together with the manager and it's composed of individual sessions for all the employees, some individual sessions only for the managers and some joint sessions in which they are together. And we are also trying to test whether this intervention is feasible and acceptable to be delivered by someone that is not a therapist so but it's called mental health engagement liaison worker so it's a liaison worker that's been trained for two weeks in delivering the intervention and in giving these sessions one-to-one to employees and and their managers 
so excited by this. I'm so delighted your energy and skills and experience are being directed into this field further. I love the model of involving the person, their manager, and some solo sessions, some joint sessions. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I look forward to hearing more about what emerges from this. I know it's early days at the moment. Yeah, so we are basically at the stage of, we, we developed the intervention, but we are testing at the moment. But what I can probably share is the fact that we've included psychological flexibility in the model. And for me, it's been amazing to be able to do that, given the fact that we've got a lot of evidence that psychological flexibility is a powerful skill to include in this sort of interventions when people are, are struggling. So, Ariana, I like to ask my guests for a, a takeaway, something that people could maybe just reflect on or try. Do you have any takeaways for our listeners? Um, yeah, so based on my experience of using ACT and psychological flexibility in the workplace, I've understood that through experience, obviously, and facing challenges, that going to an organization or working with partners and introducing psychological flexibility, it can be challenging at times because it can be misleading and it can be difficult to understand. So I think the way in which we pitch psychological flexibility, it is crucial, especially when working with people like managers. So instead of using words like acceptance, I tend to use a definition of psychological flexibility that is more pragmatic, which is psychological flexibility as open and aware and active for me has been the best way to introduce psychological flexibility to people that are completely new to this in a brief and short amount of time. So yeah, I would definitely encourage to think about how you can present psychological flexibility in a more accessible way. Then again, based on my experience, I've always seen very positive outcomes when working with value-based work. So I think when working these settings, including value-based work is very powerful and also powerful in a short amount of time. And I think this is because people are already familiar with values when we walk into an organization, especially if we work with managers. So people get a lot of motivation when they connect with their values, their you know, personal, but also values at work. And I think this is a good way to obviously set up whatever kind of work you want to do that includes behavior change, action planning or goal setting. So including values in the workplace, for me, it's been extremely successful. And then I suppose that think about the limitation of the, the tool we've got. So we know that psychological flexibility, it is helpful, but also it's important to acknowledge that sometimes there are challenges in, in the workplace that are very difficult to address, that are related to the context. And from our work, what we've seen is that psychological flexibility helps also with work-related distress. Probably these happen a bit later than psychological distress. So what we've seen in my studies is that 
psychological flexibility might help with burnout, but this seems to happen a bit later on, like at follow-up. Now, we don't know why that's the case. It might be that people, because they practice their psychological flexibility skills, then they're better able to deal with burnout. Or it might be that because they improve their psychological well-being, then later on has an impact on their burnout. We don't know. And that's, I suppose, still something that we need to understand better and we need to explore in, in the future. But what I think is coming out from my work, I think, is that if we can, even in little doses, address some aspects of the workplace context with these interventions, I think it will be more powerful. For example, trying to give these interventions also to managers or pitching these interventions to employers. So trying to not just target the employees, but the whole workplace context. I think that would be a better way to move forward. Obviously, it's not the easiest and it might not be the most cost effective, but I think it might be a good way to think about the future of ACT interventions in, in the workplace. Blimey, that's a fabulous, insightful and comprehensive set of takeaways. Thank you so much, Ariana, for your generosity, your commitment and your research. You talked about one of your values being contribution, and I'd like to thank you for your contribution to the field of well-being in the workplace. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ross. It's been a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. That's it, part two in the bag. Thanks so much to Ariana for being such a generous guest and sharing her research insights. If you like this episode of the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioural science and skills with more people. Of course, a subscription, follow, rating or review are also very much appreciated. You'll find the show notes for this episode at rossmackintosh.co.uk. And I love to hear from you, and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we're at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and Alex Engelberg for his vocals. Most of all, dear listener, thanks to you. Look after yourselves, peasoupers, and bye for now. Oh my God, I enjoyed that so much, to be fair. It's been a great fun. I love to talk about these things. And, you know, the fact that you also do loads of work that is in line with this is great. I think it came across as really natural and I think it's going to be really popular. Oh, <laughs> oh thank you. Oh, that's really nice.